Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Monroe College True Crime Blind Justice Podcast. The crisis of crime and mental health in our communities impacts all of us. Hear from experts on the front lines in law enforcement, law, and human services about the criminal justice and human response to crime, substance abuse, and mental illness. Hello, and welcome to a series of podcasts at Monroe College, the School of Criminal and Social Justice. My name is Faye Roberts-Paul, and I am the Assistant Director of the School of Criminal and Social Justice at Monroe College. It is my pleasure to be the moderator of this very important topic, femicide. I am delighted to introduce you to two professors with significant criminal and social justice experience who are here to share their expertise on femicide. First, Dr. Stephen Christopher Ippolito, PhD. In 2004, Dr. Ippolito became an adjunct professor of criminal justice and homeland security at Monroe College. Dr. Ippolito, a long-term resident of Manhattan and the Bronx, worked 10 years in the mental health field with adult psychiatric patients. Thereafter, he was appointed a parole officer for the New York State Division of Parole and the Special Offender Unit, an investigative and supervisory unit geared primarily towards sex offenders, serial offenders, confidential informants, and gang and organized crime. Retiring in 2008, he earned 22 commendations and a number of awards from various agencies and government officials, including the Brian Rooney Award, the highest award for meritorious service conferred by the New York State Parole in 1996. Academically, Dr. Ripolito has earned a baccalaureate degree, two master's degrees, and in 2017, he received his PhD from North Central University in Business Administration, with a specialization in Homeland Security Administration. His doctoral dissertation consisted of research into the convergent interactivity of terrorism and organized crime. He is currently a member of the Department of Homeland Security as the Flotilla Member Training Staff Officer for the United States Coast Guard Auxiliary. Professor Anne Paul is also an adjunct professor here at Monroe College. She is in private practice as a consultant on domestic violence policy, training, intervention, funding, and awareness initiatives. Professor Anne Paul maintains a clinical and advocacy practice with adult and child victims of domestic violence. She has lectured at Columbia University College of Social Work, New York University Bank Street College of Education, and the University of Amsterdam, Netherlands. Professor Paul is a court-qualified expert and provides testimony on domestic violence and child welfare. She has also interviewed as a domestic violence expert on CNN, Court TV, In Session, PBS, ABC, CBS, and the New York Times. Also, New York Daily News, Newsday, and Newsweek. Professor Paul is the coordinator of the DIVA Domestic Violence Awareness Steering Committee, 
dedicated to furthering domestic violence awareness in the Bronx. She has published in Bank Street Scenes, New York State Coalition Against Domestic Violence Quarterly, and New York City Council Commission on Domestic Violence Behind Closed Doors. So, to both of you, I welcome you, and let's get started. Professor Paul, may I ask you first, please explain to our audience what is femicide? Thank you, Director Robertsfall. Femicide is the killing of women, the intentional killing of women. And I think this happens a lot in the use of language and communicating significant issues in our world. Sometimes the term is used to mean the killing of all women. But in the original concept, it was used to describe the killing of women because they are women. If a bank robber kills a bank employee who is trying to subdue him, maybe the gender of the employee has no bearing at all. And maybe if the employee is a woman, it isn't femicide. But femicide, the killing of women, can be expanded to consider women who die in botched abortions, illegal abortions, women who are killed in conflict situations around the world. And the leading and most significant context of all femicide is interpersonal violence, domestic violence, intimate partner abuse, and also honor, honor in the context of her behavior and her relationship to her family. I think as we move along in this podcast that we'll expand on that some more, I'd like to ask you, is there a difference between romantic femicide and domestic violence? Nothing about femicide is romantic, but the idea of where we find the majority of femicide, of the killing of women, what is the significant marker in the killing of women is the fact that the most violent place for women around the world, according to the World Health Organization, is her own home. More women are killed and injured in their own homes than anywhere else. It's never romantic, but it's usually interpersonal. Sex workers, prostitutes, women who work in sex and gaming industries and bars are vulnerable also to femicide. Thank you, Professor. Dr. Ripolito, at this time, can I ask you, when was the term femicide first used? Well, thank you, uh, Director Roberts Paul and uh, everyone today. Femicide goes back to the 19th century. The earliest record that I think anyone is aware of was probably in the year 1801. And a man named William McNeish wrote a very strange uh, book in which he claimed that he had seduced the young woman, he impregnated the woman, and then because it was inconvenient, he murdered the woman. And he used the term femicide. So it goes back to the early 19th century. It was used throughout the 19th century. And then sometime in the 20th century, it kind of disappeared for whatever reason. Now, as uh, Professor Paul pointed out, um, it was around 1976 that Diane Russell gave a lecture. Um, I can't recall if it was the WHO or the UN, 
in which she had found the term femicide in her research and she used it. She wasn't really specific in that particular lecture, but later on she defined it as occurring in the context of misogyny and an attempt to murder women because they are women. So it kind of was reborn in 76. It goes back earlier than that. And different researchers since then have used the term differently. So there were different interpretations of what femicide is. I think for purposes of this lecture, the way I'm using it, and I think the way Professor Paul is using it, is when an individual kills a woman specifically because she is a woman. So in the context of domestic violence or uh, intimate partner homicide or serial murder, right? Think of our the famous Jack the Ripper, clear-cut femicides. So is femicide always about sexual violence? I wouldn't say always, but in most of those cases, there's a sexual component. I'll give you an example. In the, in the Jack the Ripper case, the thinking from the people that studied it in some depth were that these were sexual homicides, even though there was no overt sexuality. They were sexual homicides because the belief is that Jack received sexual satisfaction from committing these murders, especially from the dismemberment aspect of it, because the postmortem behavior was pretty brutal. Uh, he took bodily organs. He took the uterus in one case, the kidneys, the heart. It's, and that was probably uh, sexually stimulating. So most of the time I say there is a sexual component, but there can also be a cultural aspect, as in honor killings. I would say it is usually about sex in one way or another, and it is always about domination, controlling women, dominating women. Honor killing that plagues the entire Mediterranean world is often about sex, but always about dominating a woman's approach to her life, employment, advancing in, in intimate partner violence, domestic violence, economic abuse often takes the form of preventing a woman from succeeding, steal her textbooks, make her late to work, cause a commotion on the job, controlling a woman's access to freedom and advancement, domination. Okay, well, along those lines, why are men and women so dissonant in their perceptions and experiences? regarding sexual violence? That's a, that's a great question. We probably have to go back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve to uh, get the first sense of what happened there. I think the reasons are very complicated, and I think they're multidimensional. We're talking history. We're talking tradition. We're talking culture. Uh, we're talking misunderstanding. We're talking a whole lot of things that uh, tend to get uh, passed down, and this is a very complicated issue. Right. And it's complicated, and I understand that. But as the world has become smaller and people are moving around and migrating to different countries, then the differences in perceptions, they've got to be meaningful. I think they're very meaningful, very significant. Uh, Some of the most progressive immigration organizations in New York City have fully committed to helping everyone understand What are the rights of individuals in the United States of America as an important concept? And let me comment, Director Roberts-Paul, on your core comment here. I'm not at all certain 
that we have particularly different core attitudes about sex and sexual violence. I think everyone is afraid of rape. Frankly, we all have mouths. We all have anuses. We all fear sexual harm being done to us. I think it's significant that a a man who is a sexual assault victim in prison is frequently called a bitch. It makes him someone's bitch. And there is domination. There is misogyny and woman-hating in that language. And think about, you know, vulgar street language around human genitalia. If you're a pussy, you're afraid. If you're a dick, you're stupid. But if you have balls, you have courage. And it's a little bit uncomfortable, rude maybe, to use language like that. And perhaps I should apologize or have given more of a warning no that need. I was going to speak no those need. words. But I think it's significant because they hold a lot of attitude that we experience altogether. And hence the power going towards someone being male versus someone being female? To dominate, to to mm-hmm. not be the one who is hurt. Dr. Polito may have more up-to-date data than I do. Studies have indicated that what in many states is called felonious sexual assault, where the victim is sexually assaulted with objects, beer bottles, guns, that those attacks may be committed when the perpetrator, a male, does not sustain or cannot achieve a penal erection. And a frustration and the statement of power and authority, he, he does not manifest it in his own body, and he manifests it in another way, using objects to harm victims. If I can uh, point out, the, uh, in the profile of Jack the Ripper, the uh the, the FBI agents who, who did the research on that, uh, Roy Hazelwood and John Douglas, their conclusion was that Jack the Ripper, a very good chance that he was actually impotent. And so for him, I mean, the whole thing had a Freudian interpretation. For him, the sexual organ became the knife. That was their view in, in that case. Now, that's it's open to interpretation. But I think that uh, we can make a case that there's probably some validity to that. By the way, uh, Anne brought up the issue of power and domination, and I think that we can't neglect that either in femicide or in domestic violence. I think that's one of the behaviors that will have to be addressed over time if we're going to get this problem under control. Well, your comments relate to my next question, and that is what are the social elements of our environment that increase the threat of femicide? Our, Our legal structures and the enactment of criminal justice is an issue, of law enforcement, I should say, is a significant issue. A statement I've heard from so many people, from university presidents to single women on on welfare, the statement is, an order of protection is not worth the paper it's written on. And that's not always true. Uh, An order of protection from a court, a criminal court, a Supreme Court, family court, in the state of New York can be of assistance to a victim of domestic violence, intimate partner abuse. If the order is violated, the police response increases and it can be used appropriately and helpfully, but many people do not believe it. And many times it is not successful in protecting victims. Dr. Ippolito and I were, I think, supporting each other, sharing 
memories of difficult cases. I shared with him a woman I'd worked with in her substance abuse treatment program who was tortured by her abuser, who burned her as punishment for using the crack pipe. Their children had been removed uh, from and were in the custody of Child Protective Services. And he had a union job. He was represented in court by an attorney through his union. And he presented very well for short periods of time, as many abusers do. That is documented on police blotters and in theory, they often present very well for a while. Manipulation. He presented well. And she, my client, her great motivation was to was the return of her children to her custody. And she was willing to tolerate his abuse and his menace rather than threaten the way he was perceived because she thought it would prevent her getting the children returned to her. So she simply tolerated a great deal of abuse and physical torture even when I really felt I could be helpful, she would not allow me to go ahead. She just did not have confidence that I could advocate effectively for her to countervail against um, the way her abuser was perceived by significant players in the child protective service sector. Dr. Ripolito? Well, I think... Uh... What Professor Paul is, is, is pointing out there, the behavior in many places is so ingrained that uh, many victims will just throw the towel in and say, uh, I can't fight the system. When I was a law enforcement officer, I, I attempted to prosecute any number of men, and actually a couple of women at, at times. There were some violent women also, but the majority of these are men. For the domestic violence, in some cases, very serious cases of domestic violence. I cannot recall having ever won any of them, mainly because the victims recanted. I remember one woman actually told the judge that I had threatened to take her children away if she didn't cooperate, which was not the case at all. We were trying to help her. And that's how it tended to go. How can we get around the disruption in one's life? I think it's the disruption in the life that um, has an impact. I think, but I think the it, the more critical question is how do we get a a large scale socio cultural change in how people think about these things? There was a um, research done some years ago by um, Robert Moore and um, I think the other name is name was Gillette, and they made a distinction between little boy psychology and mature masculine psychology. Now, the little boy psychology, we know very well. That's the gangster. That's the bully. That's the human trafficker. That's the, the Jack the Ripper. That's, that's all part of that. How do we get to the mature masculine psychology? Because I think it's men that are going to have to make the first move in this problem. They have to recognize that for thousands of years, this type of misogynistic thinking has been built into the culture. And so now what's required is a a kind of a ruthless examination of self and of culture to how can we make the change? I think we have the elements of that already. We have the therapeutic procedures, we have law, we have this and that. But 
it's going to be a long time, I think, before we actually get that changed. How long did it take the United States to root out slavery? I mean, you weren't just, it wasn't a matter of passing a law. You had to change how people thought about this. And I think the same thing applies with the domestic violence and femicide. We need a different approach between men and women. The other day we were talking, we, I said, I agree with the term. A man should be king of his castle. But if he's married, he should recognize that there's a queen there also and that she sits on the throne as well. That's mature masculine psychology. Now, how do we get there? That's a long project. But I think we've got the beginnings of it now. And maybe if we're lucky, our grandchildren will inherit a better world in that sense. Professor Paul? I want to get back to what you said, Director Roberts Paul, about commotion in a person's life. That's an important topic. But let me just respond to what Steve just brought up. Let me share with you some recommendations to deal with intimate partner violence and teen dating violence. And these come from the Centers for Disease Control, the U.S. government-funded and supported highest organization approaching public health. They recommend teaching safe and healthy relationship skills, social-emotional learning projects for youth, healthy relationship programs for couples, engaging influential adults and peers, boys and men as allies, bystander empowerment and education, family-based programming, early childhood home visitation, preschool enrichment, parenting skills, treatment for at-risk children, and core, uh, strengthening economic supports for families, household financial security, and work family supports. This is a different America. And the values that Dr. Ippolito described as mature masculinity, the world where the privacy of the home totally respects the king and the queen. These are approachable goals. I was stunned when I read the CDC saying intimate partner violence can be prevented. Not it may be prevented, but that it can be prevented. Very precise use of language, you know, dominates in scientific research. And data indicates we can prevent it with the kinds of social progress that I just identified. And this is worldwide information. The World Health Organization and the United Nations recommendations line up exactly. Professor Paul, you've touched on some, but what are the most common forms of femicide as they relate to pregnancy, youth, poverty? What are the most common forms that you can discuss with us? It is the bonded relationship between a man and a woman, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, sexual partners, husbands and wives. Most of my colleagues in the LGBTQ advocacy community have always identified as much intimate partner violence in that community as in the heterosexual community. But it is domestic violence intimate partner abuse that is the the core of femicide, with the addition in parts of the world of honor killing, which is perpetrated by family members, the killing of a woman who is thought to have dishonored her family. Dr. Ippolito, do you have any comments? I think that uh, with respect to 
the most common types of issues. Yeah, I think that they occur in the context of intimacy, of relationship. The honor killing is is one thing, but unless and until we root out this notion of power in the relationship, I think these things will continue. In 2018, there was a famous case in Turkey, a young woman named Sule Set, C-E-T, and she was a um, university student at Ankara University, and she worked with two men in business. And you know, these, these were modern people, cosmopolitan people in certain respects, and they convinced her one night to go out and socialize. And um, all anyone knew for sure after that is that they found her on a sidewalk. She had apparently fallen or thrown herself from a window about 20 stories above. And it turned out that she had managed to get a text message out before this happened, saying that she was being held against her will by these same two men. When the police did the investigation, their first response was, gee, isn't it strange how in Turkey so many women killed themselves? And what happened was there were demonstrations by other women in Turkey. And that forced the issue of another police investigation. And then they found that Miss Said had been a rape victim. She had uh, some of the classic forensic signs of skin fragments under her fingernails. She fought with these guys. Apparently, she resisted the rape, and they threw and they threw her out the window. And they later, in the court, one of the defendants actually went to her father and said, "You should have raised your daughter better." Now, that's an example of, I think, a cultural cultural based femicide. The sexual component was there, obviously, because she resisted. And in, in, in their minds, they were entitled. They had taken her out. They forced her to drink alcohol or something. And therefore, now they were entitled to whatever, but they could still maintain the idea that she was no good. So this is this is part of the problem also. We have a limited amount of time left and so many more questions. But as it relates to guns in the home and the media, pornography, do you think femicide is a learned behavior? Yes. It is a social act. It is exactly that, a learned behavior. We discussed imagery in the media in 1939 in the film Gone with the Wind. Happy enslaved people were pictured, you know, finishing their day's work in the cotton field, happy, satisfied. Such a racist image would be intolerable 70 years later. But Images of slave girls, you know, in belly dancing outfits with rubies in their navels, that's still acceptable to many people to commodify the sexual enslavement of women can still be an acceptable image in today's world. And that contributes to the to socialization when changing my son's sheets when he was about 12 or 13, I found a girly magazine called Boobies. And most of the photos were just of women with large breasts. But one series of photos was of a woman bound up with bruise marks on her breasts. And that was an influence on my 12-year-old son. Yes. Dr. Ripolito? I think most violence is learned. I think we learn not only from formal education and from culture. I think we learn from the subculture as well, whatever the subculture happens to be. And there is 
a violent subculture just about everywhere. And so we learned that. And uh, we also learn about relations between men and women and the issue of power and violence can enter into that, that issue, you know, that, that area as well. So, yeah, I think these things are, are definitely learned in many respects, but what can be learned can be unlearned. Maybe not right away, but, but over time. So uh, continuing along that vein, the best approach is to end femicide. Would it be no pornography and no guns in the home? Well, let me say this. I'm a, I was a law enforcement officer for, uh, for many years, and I've, I've always had firearms in my home. I think it's how we respect and, and treat the firearm, but mostly how we respect and treat each other. Um, I don't think simply the presence of the gun will make a problem. Most, most domestic violence victims and intimate partner homicide are usually killed with knives. Uh, they're killed with weapons of opportunity. We also did some, some research uh, uh, a while back on, the, on strangulation, which kind of kicks the domestic violence up a notch closer to the realm of the serial offender, because there's a certain uh, fantasy that goes with that. So I think that the presence of firearms is obviously an issue, how you treat them. But I think it's more the, the values and the attitudes that we learn over time that will govern how we respond when we're upset or when we're angry, things of that sort. If I may, the, the World Health Organization's recommendations for the best approach to end femicide include strengthening surveillance and screening of femicide and intimate partner violence, training and sensitizing health staff, training and sensitizing police, reducing gun ownership and strengthening gun laws, and strengthening surveillance, research, law, and awareness of murder in the name of honor. And Director Roberts Prawl used a very significant term in the disruption of life being a barrier to freedom, to leaving domestic violence or teen abuse or continuing vulnerability to, to femicide. Disruption is a huge factor. Women of all socioeconomic and ethnic and religious backgrounds lose a lot. Family connections, jobs, a home, a healthy environment to raise children. Who is it difficult to understand staying in a violent home rather than going to a public shelter. And disruption is a huge factor in preventing uh, victim becoming survivors. So finally, how can we protect ourselves? How can we encourage other people or teach other people about femicide? We're doing it. Yeah, I think. Yes, uh, we are for I sure. I think podcasts like this are helpful. I think education is helpful. Um, I think by making it more of an issue, let's say, um, in the news and uh, in other places, I think that's one way to do it. I think we should look into certain types of uh, therapeutic procedures, but I, I think we need an overall philosophy that governs how we men and women will approach each other. I can think of one, one school of thought that, that personally I subscribe to. It's called uh, integral gender complementarity. It's a very basic thing. It means simply that men and women share 
equally in dignity, and yet we respect their inherent differences. Now, that sounds very simple, but I think that's where we have to get to. If we can do that, and that will not be easy to get to, but if we can do that, I think we're on our way to eliminating a lot of these problems, or at least a significant portion. Professor Paul, do you want to say um, last few comments? Thank you. Ending domestic violence, intimate partner abuse, ending femicide is health, health for the world, full employment, psychological, emotional, and physical health for people. These are great goals. And it is significant that raising consciousness around the concept of femicide puts pressure on government and communities to address it. That's good. This is the healthy pathway where we respect each other in our differences, where we complement each other, as, as Steve just uh, commented. So I believe in this pathway. It is for making a better world that we address femicide, domestic violence, intimate partner, abuse, and homicide. So I want to take this time and say thank you, Professor Paul, and thank you, Dr. Ippolito. I think in this discussion, we would all agree femicide can be controlled by reducing intimate partner violence. What we have done here is to highlight research and information that we think outlines the history of femicide, its perpetrators and potential perpetrators in relation to protective factors. Femicide is gender-based violence. Women are most at risk regardless of their ethnicity, age, or social status. Although this may vary from country to country, it's important that we continue to increase knowledge about femicide. Studies show that the number of women being killed due to femicide is increasing. We all have a responsibility to say and do something regarding femicide as we continue to mourn another woman's death, believing there's nothing that could have been done to save her. We are the thought leaders. Let's get to it. Please join us for our next episode of Youth, Our Future, The Wasteland of Gang Life. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information on future episodes, you can follow along at Facebook at Monroe College, Instagram at Monroe College, Twitter at Monroe College. Have a great week.